What's up, horror hounds and smokers? This is your producer, Josh. Today, we're talking about the 2020 film, Renapal, starring Will Wheaton. It's about a lonely guy named David, and how his loneliness and search for love ends up making him friends with a sinister man in a VHS tape. Sounds pretty crazy, right? Well, stay tuned, because we have a special guest with us tonight, the writer and director, John Stevenson. He's going to spill his guts in an exclusive interview. All that and more, today on High on Horror. Now it's time for Puff Puff Ask, the segment of our show where you listeners write us in questions through email at highonhorror420 at gmail.com or on any and all social media platforms minus Snapchat at <laughs> highonhorror420. Um, Nobody so, signed up for our premium snaps. <laughs> um, Alex from Trenton, New Jersey has a pretty good one. He says, uh, hey, Drew and John, I love the show, man. Thank you. Um, I love how informative and fun your show is. I kind of wish you guys covered older movies more often, like Roger Corman stuff. What's your favorite Roger Corman movie, and are there any chances you'd do a review of a Roger Corman movie? All right, great question, Alex. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, John and I have a thing here where we try to keep our reviews on older movies as a special, as you noticed, they're kind of uh, the special title was John's idea, but <laughs> to keep them a little spe- uh, separate because, uh, look, to be truthful, uh, unless you're Joe Bob Briggs or Elvira, nobody wants to hear about a movie that's 40, 50 years old. It's kind of, it's been done and every YouTuber out there has got it up, you know, they've got a review or it's just, you know, it's, it's old cake, it's old hat. So it's, uh, it's, you know, we're more interested in trying to keep up to the now and interviewing more, uh, not, not to say relevant in a disrespectful way, but relevant people who are doing things now, like indie filmmakers, like today's guest and uh, other people like that. So uh, we like to kind of stay more modern to keep up with what's going on now because we feel that uh, what's been, everything's been covered before. Like uh, we pretty much, all right, well, I'll kind of throw, throw this out there. We're debating on doing a Elm Street series review type of thing uh but that's just going to be for fun you know we we know that there's a lot of people out there that don't really care to hear people talk about a nightmare on elm street for the billionth time but that's still something that we would do so yeah doing a roger corman movie is something that you know i could see us doing down the line if it's something that is suitable um but, we're not but against has it. somebody ever covered the saga of the viking women and their voyage to the waters of the great sea serpent that's what i was gonna bring up that fucking movie <laughs> directed by One of roger the longest Corman. titles it's yeah and what an amazing title too like you just know like just off the title it's like yep i'm gonna crack a beer and i'm watching it that's all i need somebody just comes in hey man i don't know what you wanted to watch today but i have the saga of the viking women and their voyage of the waters to the great sea serpent do you want to watch it i'm literally gonna go yeah. <laughs> Attack of the Crab Monsters. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Uh, the the original is, Fast and the Furious. Well, the thing about Roger Corman, though, is, you know, he's directed 56 movies and he's produced, produced over 500. Right. And so it's, uh, he's, the, you know, the question's kind of vague, but because when people say, you know, uh, uh, a Roger Corman movie, they don't really necessarily mean directing. They just mean, like, I guess a movie with his name on it. So, you know, like he did Piranha. Piranha's good, but that's directed by Joe Dante. Piranha 3D, to Right. Yeah. <laughs> Joe Dante, again, he keeps coming up. Uh, I'm gonna, 
Joe Dante, I'm going to have to bring him, uh, see if I can get him on the show. You know, we've talked about Gremlins and the Howling a thousand times, and here he comes again. He directed Piranha. Um, Slumber you know, Party and, Massacre was he was a producer of. Yeah, and also, he, my, I guess my favorite movie of his was originally known as Monster, but now it's known as Humanoids from the Deep, and he was the executive That's producer on that. Um, Barbara Peters and T, uh, Jimmy T. Uh, Murakami directed that, but uh, again, Corman was a uh, producer. That's probably my favorite movie with his name attached to it. Um, however, if I were going off movies he directed, I would have to say it's the Edgar Allan Poe, Vincent Price, uh, the, the Mask of Red Death yeah, from 1964. Pin the Pendulum's good too. All those old gothic, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, Vincent Price movies, but Mask of Red Death does it for me. Death's, well, I guess he was uncredited at Death Sport, but oh, man, let me see. The movies he's directed. It conquered the world's a good one. Um, yeah. He has, a, like, like I said, there's over 50, almost 60 titles just under his. Mask you know. of the Red Death, probably, but that's not the one. The Crab one's the one I've seen the most. I don't he know did why the I original just, Little Shop of atta- Attack of the Crab, Crab Monsters. That's your, that's your answer? Or you're just, that's you're the just... one I've probably seen the most. The okay. Mask of the Red Death is probably definitely the best one. It's funny too when you see the little shop of horrors though, like his original version, because when you see it, it's very satirical, but it's a very like funny movie and it's dark. And then you see like the Rick Moranis musical remake, and uh, it definitely like, it's a more more of a satire, more goofy and laid back, and it doesn't have Jack Nicholson's crazy ass in it. <laughs> Jack Nicholson makes every movie better, like Tom Atkins. Agreed. All right, getting on to our second question here, Max from Washington State. Is there any movie that you won't watch due to it making you less high or stressing you out? I can tell you what stresses me out is Rob Zombie's Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see that one coming. That was good. That was good. Yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't figure that one out. Actually, well, I was going to... You got the sweats. You got the meat sweats. You got the meat sweats. (laughs) Watch it, Rob Zombie's Halloween. I don't know why specifically meat sweats. I don't know either. Don't ask me. You're the one that has them. <laughs> you ain't never had meat sweats not once. <laughs> not ever Rob Zombie's Halloween. Uh, uh, I can't really think of one. I mean, I, I guess maybe it's more like what wouldn't I watch by myself? Yeah, I'd probably say like Sinister. Okay. For the longest time, I couldn't watch uh, the It miniseries by myself. Oh yeah, yeah. I have one that I think you might agree with. So I would have to say I was thinking about that about this question. Solo, solo, a hundred percent. Because the thing the is, shit again, with, the, again, with that raspberry sausage. Again, the thing is, yes, because look, there are more. There are brutal films out there. Like uh, I would consider the August Underground films to be more hardcore. A Serbian film. Uh, I don't know. Honestly, I don't even know if I'd say a Serbian film is more hardcore or not. But uh, there is again a sense of cinema, a sense of enjoyment. In those movies, uh, some of you are like, Serbian film, no, you know, it's like, whatever, fine, you don't like it, you don't like it, cool, but it is, if you get it, you get it, and it is like, a, it's a decent movie, um, and uh, yeah, it's like those movies you can kind of see, like, it's a movie, but with Solo, it's almost just like pure dread, like, I don't really get anything out of watching it, you know, uh, Pasolini really, really hammered the nail on that one, man, like, uh, no matter how baked I am, I could stand being scared, like you said, Sinister, I could stand, you know, smoking and getting scared, you know, that's kind of fun for me, uh, the, the Exorcist used to bug me out, but not anymore, but I don't think there's ever a part of me that's gonna be able to just get baked and enjoy just, you know, uh, kid rape and, uh, 
watching people eat shit. I just don't ever see that being like, a, yeah, let me crack a bowl and relax to that. That's just not happening. <laughs> let me crack, crack a bowl. Crack a bowl. Like, I'm like, <laughs> crack a beer, bowl, I'm beer. <laughs> crack a Crack a beer. <laughs> you just cracking bowls. What, you like, you fill it. It's a, it's like a disposable. <laughs> you just smoke it and then you just crack it afterwards. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it. Uh, well, I guess with that, I don't. Have anything? Else. You agree? You is, is that gonna or are you still you still saying sinister? I don't know. I feel like I could still smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Tasala, you say you could still smoke and chill? Yeah, I'm not like saying like I'm celebrated. I'm saying <laughs> I could still like smoke. I'm not like, oh shit, they eat in the shit. Let me pack a bowl right quick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'll smoke if I'm smoking, but like I don't know. Maybe you know. It's it's not. It's uh, uh to me. I feel that like this is a bold statement and a broad statement, but I do feel that it is sem- somewhat true. Uh, to me, Solo is like an hour. I don't even remember how long the movie is. Actually, it's been like so many years since I've watched it because I just don't watch it often. It's probably. I think it's about two two hours. Uh, let me check real quick. Let me see what it says. Uh, it's about yeah. I'm gonna well. I, I I don't know. I'm gonna say it's about two hours long. But my point is that uh, it's just uh, it, it's the worst parts of Cannibal Holocaust. Draw drug out over <laughs> two hours. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good point. That's how I would describe it. Yeah, I don't know why. Like, yeah, I feel like yeah, it definitely feels long too. That's yeah, that's the thing. even if it's oh here an hour and fifty seven minutes. I was right, but uh, yeah, like you just said, even if it wasn't. An hour and 57 minutes. It certainly fucking feels like an hour. And also, it says not rated. No fucking wonder. Yeah. I think you showed that to me, what, like three years ago or something like that? That was, yeah, and that was one of those ones when I, you watched it, you didn't really say anything afterwards, and I was a little worried. I was like, did I just lose a friend? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, Come so, to find out, you're just like remaking your fiance relive the shit at home, telling her about it, watching her gag and laugh. So you got something out of it. Well, what's that say about you that you'll watch something fucked up just so you can turn it around and flip it on other people to get their reactions? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> anyway, I think that'll about wrap this up. So, uh, yeah, make sure to send your questions into us on uh, everything Drew said except Snapchat. You got to pay extra for that. So, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. That's TikTok. All. I guess you could send them through TikTok somehow. If you want. <laughs> if you if you want, you just gotta click on the video and like send us a message. Anyway, hi on horror 420. That's where you can send the questions in. You can email them to us at hi on horror 420 at gmail.com. And uh, you can always submit them via our website, hi on horror.com. And now it's time to get into our film discussion of Renapal. Renapal? Run a Pal is a 2020 film written and directed by today's guest, John Stevenson. Run a Pal is the story of David Brower, Brower played by Brandon Landis Falcons. Brilliantly played by. I, th- I, ho- I hope I pronounced it. Falcons, yeah. That's how Falcons, I would say it, yeah. The Millennium Falcon. <laughs> anyway he's a middle-aged bachelor who's looking for romance through the video dating scene in 1990 his father passed away 10 years ago he was an accomplished jazz musician and now he takes care of his mother lucille played by kathleen brady who's suffering through dementia and in addition to that she's irritable and often mistakes david for her late husband frank 
And like I said, David's using the video dating scene and it's a video rendezvous is the name of it. Like you just sounds like a name of a place that's just setting people up to have sex, right? (laughs) It was like video rendezvous was like the old school Tinder. (laughs) That's a very good way of looking at it. And uh, he's been trying his dating service for six months. No luck. Diane played by Adrian Egolf. She is such a predator. This woman charges a nickel and dimes David out of everything. Oh, yeah. It gets it gets worse throughout the film. But uh, sh- like I said, she's always charging David for every little thing. So she suggests, because it's been six months, he should update his video profile. So David comes in. He records this really heartfelt, like video about how you know he cares for his mother and he just wants to be somebody there to take care of people and the guy filming it was like oh you went too long it was a minute and a half and you got redo it in 30 seconds and those 30 seconds went pretty brutal for him uh it was god awful as uh don Vito and the godfather said look at him butcher my boy (laughs) (laughs) on the way out he comes over the bargain bin of the vhs tapes he finds one called Renapal. David takes the tape home. He watches it. On the tape, there's a man named Andy, played by Will Wheaton. I'm sorry, Will Wheaton. And uh, he appears to talk to the viewer in the tape, and he allows space for the watcher to respond. And David's watching the movie. Uh, well, as he's watching the, I guess it's not really a movie. It's the Renapal tape. Uh, we learn a lot more about him through this tape. And uh, without getting into more here, this tape isn't a one-time viewing for Andy. Uh, he might watch it more than you and I have watched Child's Play 2 together. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I mean, he, it's, uh, yeah, uh, he literally almost, uh, he pulls the tape out at first and it's kind of like, now nah, this is dumb. And then literally you watch him just break down and get so desperate that he just literally gives in. And, and some just, weird shit happens when David watches this tape. Right, well, well, also, I wanted to bring up the real quick, one of the most pathetic scenes in the film for me for david was when uh, he calls the video uh video rendezvous and diane answers right yeah. and she answers and he goes hi diane it's david and she goes account number please like he calls <laughs> like almost like expecting her to know who he is like he's expecting like oh i'm there all the time she knows who i am and like because yeah, he even she, goes it's david and she has no idea and she just goes uh give me your account number and he looks she looks up his account and then she's like oh yeah here you are and it's like like you said she's a ruthless predator like he's nothing but dollar signs to her and here he is thinking that she's actually putting effort in she cares about these people she's trying to hook them up she don't care she doesn't know their names and it's like that to the fact that he's so used to going there that he expected her to be on a first name basis with him to me was just kind of pathetic uh and the fact that she didn't is even more pathetic (laughs) and shortly after where i stopped here another example is shortly after he gets the rent a pal tape uh david gets a call from diane that she's found a match and he gets he runs down and he forgot his wallet Mm -hmm. so that he goes back and this is a fucked up shit he comes back and she's like oh somebody else came and got her tape she matched with somebody else and i knew that was gonna happen the second he said that he lost his wallet she just did not look happy like and you could tell it was a next in line type of deal like you know and then uh he goes well can i at least see what i was missing out on and she goes, sure, gives him the tape and then charges him for the tape that he's not going to get a date of. Yep. Like, Di- Diane's probably the biggest piece of shit in this entire She was probably like, he's going to go home and pull dick to this anyway, so you know what, I'm going to charge him. <laughs> wow, she's saying, probably. 
I mean, you, I'm, honestly, let's be real for a second. You know that a lot of people were doing that oh, shit back I'm, then. I'm sure. Dude, And have you ever seen like any of... Dude, do you remember them as a kid? I vaguely... Yeah, they I'm look just like it in this movie. Kind of, like yeah. authentic. Like those, those like there's dudes with, films in front of a shitty backdrop. You know, and it's always the dudes that are always so nervous and pasty looking. You know what I mean? And then, either, either that or dudes that look like they were like trying to be Tom Selleck that were like overconfident. <laughs> yeah. And then you, a lot of the girls, it's funny because you got a lot of the girls that you'd see were just, you know, uh, like the ones you'll see in this movie. They're kind of mousy. And a lot of them are actually like some of them. Like with the dudes, you're like the ones that I remember seeing is uh, of dudes. I remember thinking like, well, there's a reason they're 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 looking to you know connect with somebody. And then you see some of the women, and you're like, really? Like they're they're striking out so much that they need to reach out. They're pretty, you know. So the it's always ugly men and pretty women is usually what I see, well, or what I've seen, not what I see. I don't watch them. I well, watch I them. mean, ugly I'm desperate married, men is how, so is how they're going to get their money. <laughs> but. uh yeah, once again, it's another movie we're uh, reviewing around a VHS tape, and uh, it's amazing when you think about it. Really, how little Will Whedon actually Will Whedon? How many? Sorry. <laughs> how many lines he actually has versus how much he actually speaks in the, the entire movie? The impact of the movie he has, yeah, the impact he has. Because like I'm, you, like like you could tell it wasn't a long recording process, but. The amount that just stretched out from that one recording that's used throughout the movie, it works. Andy's control on David is like controls the narrative. And the real Andy probably has no fucking clue. Like <laughs> he's just going making run a pal too to search for more money. Yeah, right. Yep, he don't give a damn. But uh yeah, we're trying this new thing where we don't spoil movies as much. Especially newer movies. <laughs> Especially yeah, newer movies. Video drone, we're telling you how that's ending. Like, it came out, you had your chance. You had your chance. <laughs> you You've had, had 40 years. Ch- business is business. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely check this out on Hulu. Um, this is like, I wanted to say this real quick. We interviewed Lucky McKee, uh, one of our favorite interviews, one of our favorite episodes from May, uh, a movie that we both fucking love. I was thinking so much of May. When I watched this movie, man, I was like, if this isn't like the the, uh, the male version of May without the doll, it's more of like replace the doll with a VHS and it's fucking May. It's, uh, and it's that same, like anybody can relate to that level of loneliness and anyone can maybe not relate, but maybe can sympathize with the mental break that occurs from it. I think I would say maybe it's even more of a slow burn than May. Yeah, it is. It is more of a slow burn for sure. But th- yeah, there's definitely parallels you can see between it, but it's on Hulu. Um, like I said, check it out. What what would you give it, Drew? You know, I was thinking about this, and it, it's hard, like because and it's also one of those kind of movies that you can't really, unless you're going to ruin the movie. Yeah, you can't really can't really dive too deep into it. Yeah, and uh, it's you know the thing is, there's things about this movie like that that really stand out about it, like the acting is is really well done and the fact that it's done on a low budget but it's not overly ambitious it's just more focused on telling the story uh you know and last week we did broadcast signal intrusion man we're doing some hard movies so like, like all good like I'm, I'm, there's no there's no negative thoughts it's just oh, i hate over that's obviously why why we're putting them yeah exactly and, <laughs> you know, and, and they're I, good and we want to talk to the people involved absolutely and that's the thing that what i'm saying like it's hard i'm not saying it's hard because i'm debating between giving it a bad review and a good review i'm saying it's hard because it's like i hate overrating movies i don't i hate like i've done that before when i used to blog where i'd give a movie a high rating 
And then years later, I go back and I'm kind of like, I don't know if it really was a 10, you know? So I kind of like try to refrain from that. Like I said on prior episodes, a 10 is more earned. Like the descent is a 10. When that movie came out, I gave it like an eight for for the longest time. And then after like 10 years, I was like, all right, it's definitely a nine. And then when you watch it and it keeps keeps up its integrity, you're like, all right, it's a 10. It held up, you know? So anyway, I'm rambling. (laughs) Um, So my answer for this, I think that this movie has the complete potential for me to say that it's a nine. Um, later down the line like completely like give it a couple years when i watch it again but either way it's a solid 8 8.5 right now i was gonna say like 8.6 8.7 yeah see and the problem is i don't even remember what i rate the other movies just in- <laughs> so right. I, I, there might be other movies that i've rated higher that if i've looked back i probably went oh maybe i wouldn't have rated it over that movie but when i think about it that's where i put it yeah it, i don't even think it's necessarily a comparison like yeah, it's I hard mean, to compare a lot of movies. It's but... hard to compare a lot of movies. And that's the thing about movies is it's important to not review a movie. When you're watching a movie, unless you're a movie maker and a fucking know-it-all, it's really important to not watch a movie and go, oh, this movie sucked because I would have done this and I would have done that and they should have done this. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just watching the damn movie. I'm just so, so right. my job as a movie, ma- as, as a, as a I said movie maker, my job <laughs> as a movie watcher and as a critic and as a fan is to just simply watch what is there and judge what is there. Not throw in any of my, oh, they should have done this or I would have done that. Nope. Cut that shit out. Watch what's there. And that's what you're talking about. That's what you're reviewing. You're not going to put any, don't put any of your outside nonsense into it. Just watch the movie and review that movie, review what's there. And with what's there, it's like, there's, there's nothing to not really like, I mean, to not dislike. I mean, there's nothing to not dislike. It's like everything about this movie is completely likable. Yeah. The case, it was really well done. You definitely, uh, David definitely, definitely he carried the movie. He yeah. definitely did a good job carrying the movie. Yeah, that character, you could definitely feel how lonely he is and the life he's kind of... I guess he's not trapped in it. He's keeping himself in it, but... He's definitely miserable. He's content with being miserable. You know, I guess that's the best way to put it. Well, I don't really think there's too much more we can say about Renapal. So uh, I think now it's time to get into Burn and Learn, a segment of our show where we fill you in on some behind-the-scenes facts about the movie we're talking about, and in this case, Renapal. Oh. Hmm. Burn and learn. Actually, this is a pretty cool burn and learn because director John Stevenson sent us over these himself. These are exclusive to this podcast. You're not going to find these on IMDb. I'll go first. Here we go. You might afterwards. That's very <laughs> true. And remember, you heard it first on High on Horror, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> um, the real High on Horror. Um David's mom, Lucille, is played by Kathleen Brady. It was her first feature film role, having spent the majority of her career as a top-level theater actress in Denver, Denver, Colorado. Wow, that's actually pretty interesting. That was her first uh, film role. Yeah. Uh, The station wagon used by David in the film is a 1989 Ford Country Squire. It was purchased off Craigslist by John Stevenson for the movie. He still owns the wagon, lovingly named Lucille, and takes his kids out for joy rides in the summer. Will Wheaton, I have to stop. <laughs> Will Wheaton filmed all his scenes for Renapal in just one day. He, he was so good that they finished filming four hours early and actually had to come up with other things to do to fill the time. Now that's pretty cool. Wow, four hours early. That's a professional right there. 
Amy Rutledge, who plays Lisa, was cast for the film after she submitted one take of her monologue from the video rendezvous dating video. The director loved her performance so much she was hired without additional callbacks and flown out from New Jersey to film the role. Oh, wow. Um, the house location where David lives was located next door to the director John Stevenson's home. It was previously occupied by an old woman who had recently passed. All of the furniture and items in the house were already there except for the couch, TV, and the basement where David talks to Andy. And the video rendezvous lobby scenes were filmed at Colorado Film School where Stevenson went to college for cinematography. All the scenes of video rendezvous were filmed in one day. Oh, no kidding. That's true indie filmmaking right there. For sure. All right, well, now it's time to talk to the director, John Stevenson himself. Let's get, let's get deeper into this uh, movie, man, and talk to the guy behind the camera, yeah. see what he has to say. Today's guest uh, does it all from cinematography to writing, editing, producing, and now directing. Uh, recently, he produced an episode of WWE's Peacock series, Evil. I'm a big fan of that entire series, but you did what I think is the best episode, in my opinion, The Brothers of Destruction. Thank you. I got lucky with that. Uh, and it's not its not because I'm biased at all with The Undertaker. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, man. He's uh, I, I felt grateful that they assigned me that one because I, I agree. He's the best one. For I, sure. I feel like that was the marquee one everyone was looking forward to. Uh, but the main reason you're here today is to talk about the amazing psychological horror film that you wrote, directed, produced and edited. Renapal. Uh, welcome, John Stevenson, the high on heart. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. I appreciate you reaching out. It's uh, it's awesome to have you, man. Uh, we're we're really looking forward to talking to you. So, uh, but I want to start this like we do with uh, everyone. You know, you're on high on horror, so uh, I understand you are a smoker, right? How often do you blaze? You know, it's uh, yes, I do smoke. I smoke less than I used to uh, now that I'm older and have kids. But like, it's definitely a part of my creative process. So it's a common thing in my life. <laughs> <laughs> right on well do you have like a uh, a favorite strain or are you an indica or sativa guy you know uh it depends on it depends on the day um right now actually i've been really enjoying these 1906 um like pills and they have different kinds there's like go genius i like genius because it makes me feel like i'm going to be smarter and then uh, love and, you know, all these. Other, so you can take ones for different moods. And um, so I enjoy taking those. And then, uh, you know, I'm not too much of like, a, you know, a connoisseur. So I don't keep track too much of strains or anything like that. But uh, in general, I think Indica is my is a little better because I do tend to get a little anxiety on the sativa. You know, I've been hearing that. I feel like a lot recently. Everybody felt like you used to always be about sativas. But now... I feel like as me and my friends have got older, it's more, yeah, I want the Indica. I just want to relax. Exactly. I don't want to be afraid that I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, do, do you have a favorite way uh, to consume? Is it edibles? Is it smoking? Yeah. Uh, you know, I get uh, pre-rolled raw cones and just fill those up and smoke myself a little I, joint. I, love I used those. to smoke cigarettes, you know, so I still enjoy the the smoking part of it. But, uh, like I said, those, those 1906 pills too, are just like really easy to pop. 
Uh, I, I, I agree. I love the raw codes. They're just so easy. They already have the little filter in there. You just twist, fill it and twist it and you're good. Mm-hmm. I'm not as cool. Like I've seen people roll joints and there's nothing cooler than just being like casually rolling a joint while you're having a conversation. So I haven't taken the time to learn that yet. And uh, I wanted to jump in here with uh, the Evil series. How was it working with WWE and Peacock? Yeah, that was a really interesting um, process. We It's funny that I ended up working on that show because um, I'm not like a huge wrestling, you know, uh, follower. I obviously like grew up, you know, seeing it. So I was really familiar. But um, a friend of mine was the showrunner. And so uh, he brought me on as a producer to work on it. And um, I had to become like a wrestling expert within a month. So I was just reading like every article I could. Because aside from the Undertaker episode, I also helped write um, outlines for all the other episodes. So, you know, having to just know everything about Randy Orton and Stephanie McMahon and, you know, Hulk Hogan. So it was really fun. Uh, is that like something you would want to do in the future? Like more stuff with WWE and Peacock? If if they asked, um, yeah, I, I... I would totally be open to it. It was just fun to do something outside of my normal wheelhouse. I do a lot of documentary, you know, stuff kind of um, outside of the horror filmmaking and also um, commercial work. And so I just kind of, I'm always doing a lot of things. So this was one of those new experiences of like wearing the producer writer hat. Um, Normally I'm writing and directing. So um, yeah, if they asked me to do something again, I'd totally be down. (laughs) And uh, you said you weren't the biggest pro wrestling fan, but you watched it growing up. Did you have a favorite wrestler growing up? Um, I think it was Hulk Hogan, but only because like he was the guy like you couldn't escape Hulk Hogan. And so I'm sure I had a few Hulk Hogan toys, but I never actually watched the broadcast because um, uh, I don't think my parents would let me. And so I just never really got into it. But it was... uh, it's really fun, especially the Hulk Hogan story, learning about how um, just like really getting into the business side of it and how he was at uh, WCW and then went over to WWF and they had the invasion and um, then WWF bought WCW. So there's just all, all this really good uh, history there to learn, too. And uh, getting into uh, Renapel, um, I had to ask you because you did edit your own movie. Uh, we had Jacob Gentry on last week. And he said for him, editing his own movie was kind of weird. Did did you feel the same way about that? You know, um, I totally understand that sentiment. I think it's different for everyone. I uh, personally started out as a shooter and a lot of times was and I ended up editing my own stuff. And so I'm very much used to editing um yeah, my, what I'm shooting. And in fact, I think editing makes you a better shooter because if you're in there cutting, you know exactly what you need. So then when you show up, you're just like, Oh yeah, I'm not going to use that. No, we'll just cut there. You know, like, so it actually helps a lot, um, on set. And, uh, I think it made us really efficient in shooting Renapal because I knew like, no, we don't need that. We're going to cut to the medium for that line. And then, you know, cause I, I had the whole movie kind of in my head beforehand too. So, um, but yeah, I've always, uh, been interested in working with an editor, someone else editing a movie that I write or direct. Cause I do think it would be, uh, interesting to have someone else's eyes on it and, you know, see them 
they they are removed from it, so they see it in a way that you might not have thought of, which um, could be really exciting. So I'm I'm um, I hope to be collaborative in that way someday on a, on a future project. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because I had mentioned, uh, as John had said to uh, our guest last week, Jacob Gentry, and uh, I had mentioned to him how uh, it's it's funny because he said that although it was weird for him to edit his film, that it was also like the funnest part for him. And I had said that I think that I have never made a mo- uh, movie before. I've never filmed anything. But from my perspective, I imagine editing being more, you know, about it's more movie magic than actually filming because so much stuff is done in post-production that like, it's like all that editing can change anything. It can make anything just go from one thing to another. You can add one scene in between another scene and just totally make something completely different. So it's like, don't you feel that editing kind of is, is more movie magic than maybe actually directing or part of movie magic? I should say. I a hundred percent agree. With that. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with that because you know, when you think of a, when you start writing the movie, you're watching it in your head. And so then you write the script, then you pull everything together to direct it. And then we shoot it and it's like, all right, this is coming together. But then when you sit down and start cutting it, you have the footage, you have the sound, you have music. And like my favorite thing to do is to pull the raw footage into the timeline, start adding music cues and little sound effects. And it's like, Ooh, it's starting to like be a real movie and then cutting it all together and like making those decisions. And all of that is, is probably my favorite um, part. Um, And especially sound design. I did all the sound editing and sound design for the movie too. And that's like one of, if, if I wasn't um, in another multiverse timeline, I would imagine I might've been like a sound engineer because I just really enjoy the cutting of, of the sound effects. Right on. Um, well, uh, you know, a lot of people say that nowadays it's hard to make a movie and uh, with, you know, a lot of people we have on this podcast, we have a lot of indie filmmakers. So I want to ask you, um, is it hard to make a movie nowadays? You know, you've done it all. You've directed, you've edited, you've produced. Um, it's like, you know, everyone seems like they're making a movie, but everybody says that it's hard to make a movie. What's your perspective? I think um, there's a lot of ways you could interpret that. It's hard to make a movie and get it distributed. That's hard. It's hard to make a movie and make money or, you know, those kind of things. In my opinion, it's the easiest it's ever been to make a movie. And it depends on what kind of movie you're making. But you, I mean, people hate the sentiment sometimes, but like you really can go out and shoot a movie on an iPhone if you know what you're doing with lighting and, and framing and all this kind of stuff, the camera ultimately isn't a big uh, factor. You can do, you know, shoot with almost any camera. It's just a different look that you're picking when you're picking the camera. And, you know, just with like, I've got this awesome Apple laptop that they just came out with that can like edit red footage. And, you know, in technologically, it's the it's never been easier to make a movie. Um, but um, and also to to that point it's really easy to make a movie if you make it easy and that's kind of what we tried to do on Renapal that we were making a movie with everything we had at our disposal um i already owned a camera and lenses because of commercial work i had done um you know all my friends work in the film industry so i brought them on and they were helping me out but also um it just so happened that like the house next door to my house was empty because an old woman was living there. She passed away. I became friends with her sons, my neighbors, 
And I asked them, I was like, Hey, can I shoot a horror movie in this house? It's really cool. And they were like, yeah, sure, man. That'd be so cool. So the reason that that house looks so authentic and cool is because everything that's in that house was there. Like we, we pulled some stuff out of boxes and out of the attic and stuff, but like everything was there. And we only brought in the couch downstairs, the TV and a few other things to make sure that everything was period correct. But like, um, that's what I mean is like, we just got lucky that we had this treasure trove of high production value. And so from that perspective, it was really easy to, to pull that off because it just so happened to be next door. So I, you know, that's never going to be the case for everybody. Like some like, Oh, I just happened to have a perfect location next door to my house. But, um, at least keeping in mind that, that idea of making a movie with what you have at your disposal and not trying to like go out and find something that is really hard to get. You can make a good movie with the things around you. If you just are smart about how you put it all together, you know? A hundred percent. I agree. It's uh some people just, you know, uh, on a shoestring budget, try to be too ambitious. And it's like, when you work with what you have, when you, it's really, and here's the thing. I've always said this. Um, people don't always agree, but it's the truth. Budgets and big effects do not make movies. Stories, make movies you can have a story about two people sitting in a room and have it be more compelling than buildings blowing up and robots in the street it's like story is what's important so i think it's it's a part of people being too ambitious and saying like i know that i have a low budget but i want to do this instead of just going i want to tell a good story about characters and i can pull that off absolutely and um not only is it a, it's all about story absolutely and to your point making Try, let's say you had a hundred thousand dollars and you're trying to make a million dollar movie or a, or a $10 million movie or, you know, like something that's too ambitious. It's like trying to build a mansion out of cardboard and being like, Hey, look how beautiful this mansion is. And people are like, I, it's made out of cardboard, bro. Like they're not going to fall for it. And so you have to, if you have a hundred thousand dollars to make a movie, make a hundred thousand dollar movie. Don't try to make something more than with you know, more than what you have, you know? Yeah. Um, this isn't your first time getting kind of involved in the thriller horror. I wouldn't really say that run a palace horror. It kind of is on the edge. I definitely consider it thriller. Um, it's kind of horror, but you know, you were involved in eat. How did you get involved in that? That's a pretty solid movie. Yeah. Um, eats awesome. Uh, eats directed by, uh, the very talented Jimmy Weber and him and I went to film school together. So, um, that was the first feature film that we made together. So I shot that movie. Um, and then Renan Powell was my first kind of, uh, crack at directing. So. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, um, so with, uh, you know, the actual, the anthology films, the VHS films, and, uh, there's like four of them now. And, uh, with, you know, there's beyond the gates and there's uh, a sensor and all these movies popping up about, you know, the VHS era and, you know, about VHS tapes and them being cursed or whatnot. And Renapal fits right into that. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the appeal right now with the VHS genre and like thrillers and thrillers and horror films? Do you think it's, uh, you know, a lot of missed opportunities while the VHS era was happening, like movies that could have been made during that era about that? Or do you feel that it's like kind of just like a nostalgic thing that you can take people back to something that's nostalgic, but put a little like twist on it? I think it's it's nostalgia based mostly um, because, uh, you know, like when I was a kid, Back to the Future came out 
and my parents were like growing up when in 1955, you know, so like around that time they were making a lot of movies in the fifties and, you know, and then there's a lot of stuff in the, that took place in the seventies when we were in the nineties. So I just think it's that time where like people that grew up with VHS are now reaching adulthood and kind of like, yeah, I remember VHS. That's crazy. You know, and I'm sure there's going to be a horror movie in the next five or so years with uh, a CD as like the villain who knows, <laughs> but uh, there is, I will say there's something really cool about the VHS aesthetic. Like um, what, what I, what got me really excited about rent a palace, just how when you're watching something on a VHS tape on an old CRT television, the, uh, you, you kind of like the ring. There was just something so creepy about the tape because it was a tape and not, you know, like a crystal clear thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of the creepiness of that was just like, I also mixed with the nostalgia I thought was really cool. So yeah, I think it's just one of those things that's like coming back around, you know? Absolutely. Um, uh, either way, it's either way is like totally an acceptable answer because like you said, it's VHS babies are, you know, all over it either way. It's just, you know, I wanted to hear your perspective on it. And um, Renapal was your first feature film as a director. It was your first feature film. So what do you find most fulfilling uh, about making a movie and getting it out into the world? Man, um, there's so, there's so much about it. I don't know that I could pick the most fulfilling thing, but um uh, I will say that it's really hard physically. It takes a lot of energy to make a movie. You know, we were talking about, is it hard to make a movie? No, but yes, it is because like the amount of time and energy that you have to put into it to pull it off. Like it's your baby, it's your passion project. So in order for a filmmaker to, to put themselves through that, the idea that they're trying to bring to the screen has to really just like move, you know, be, something that's a huge inspiration for you, really move you from your core. And that's what, what Renapal was for me was I had a lot to say with that movie for myself. And so to, to come up with the idea and be like, I have to say this, you know, type of thing and then finish it and I'm cutting it and I'm seeing it all to come together and it's really cool. And then it comes out and people watch it and they like it. It's just, um, I think that, is the most rewarding part is like, Hey, it was all, I, it was all worth it. And what I felt that inspiration that I felt to do this project was something that other people can also feel. Um, so in general, with all the things that I do, directing is definitely the most fun. Like it's so much fun. And, um, I really enjoy that. I love doing, Oh, did my earpiece die? you guys still hear me? No, I can, I mean, I can, I can hear you. Yeah. Sorry. Um, the, (laughs) the, uh, with all of the different things that I do edit, shoot, whatever directing is definitely the most fun. And, um, I really am excited to, to do it again. Um, so, you know, but the good news is I really love writing too. So I'm writing the next thing and that's awesome. So just every step of the process is so, fun and i i feel like i'm the luckiest person in the world that i get to do it for a job like how crazy is that that's awesome living the dream man good for you that's awesome i'm glad that you find so much uh enjoyment and fulfillment out of doing it you know i've always wanted to direct a movie myself but i've i've never done it i've just studied them i'm like i'm like tarantino that never got behind a camera but i don't have like 
half the knowledge. You know what I mean? <laughs> you should do it, man. I highly recommend everybody just, you know, and sometimes directing is as simple as making a short film with your friends. It doesn't have to be this like big undertaking, you know, and, um, I don't know. I used to, I used to shoot movies when I was a kid, when I was 13, I got my first camera and I never, we would go out and like make spoofs and jackass ripoffs and all kinds of stuff like that. But at the t- looking back, there was stuff that I was doing where I was like, Oh, I was like directing back then, even though I didn't realize that's what it was. And so, um, I think people think of directing as this, like, Oh, this artistic endeavor, but really you can just like go and, and do it, you know? So I, I highly recommend anyone who thinks that maybe they could make a feature. They definitely should. Yeah, man. I, I definitely will consider it, you know, like, uh, it's definitely something that I would like to do. It's on my bucket list, but, um, I want to, um, I want to delve into kind of like the, uh, the psych, the psychology of, uh, Renapal for a second. Um, so, uh, your lead character, David, um, I grew up in a broken home. So I wanted to ask you this question. Um, so your main character, David, he mentions how he was kind of abused as a kid and how his mom went harder on him than needed. Um, and the way he clings to her, would you say that David suffers from Stockholm syndrome and does he really enjoy taking care of his mom or is it just, you know, he's so lonely that he does it to have someone to be around? Yeah. Great question. Um, I wouldn't call it Stockholm syndrome, but what I would say is David is someone who grew up as a people pleaser, someone who felt, Hey, I have to, do whatever I can to make the people around me happy. Otherwise they might not love me. And so, and that's the kind of house that, um, I grew up in and a lot of people, you know, that, um, have, you know, maybe you experienced that yourself, but that's, that's kind of the, um, difference between unconditional love and conditional love from your parents. So, um, what I saw with, what I was trying to say with David was that he's someone that even if he really doesn't want to do something, will do it because he feels like he has to. And so part of him, you know, if he would have had the means and the money, he probably would have put his mom into a home, but he also, but you know, because of their circumstances, he kept her at home, but also probably felt a sense of obligation and duty towards her. And is just constantly trying to get through to her like, hey, I'm over here. And she doesn't even know who he is, you know. So um, just trying to get that, um, finally get a little bit of love from her, I think, was was what I was trying to do there. Yeah, I, I definitely can uh, relate to that. It was more uh, my dad than my mom. But I can totally relate to the, what you're saying. That makes sense. More of just trying to, trying to just do everything you can to kind of kiss ass in a way to kind of just break through and get that like moment of acknowledgement. A hundred percent. I get it. Yeah. And it's, it's when you grow up in that kind of household, it, it, it programs everything about your personality. And not only will you, it, it, it basically leads to a lack of boundaries with people. And so you inherently form unhealthy relationships with other people because you have no boundaries because you're just like, yeah, I'll do anything, whatever it takes to like make you happy, you know? And, um, that's kind of why the, you know, David falls for Andy is there's a part of him that like, dude, it's a tape, but even if it's just a tape, he still wants to like be respectful and, and make the guy in the tape happy. Like, no, yeah, we're doing this right. Like play playing to this thing. That's not even, you know, real a person it's not even a real person in the room 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, and going more into the psychology of David or the psyche of David in the <laughs> video rental store, um, David picks the black jelly bean out of the bowl. What were you trying to say about David? Like, what does that signify about him? <laughs> Anytime I ever see a black jelly bean, I go, who picks the black jelly beans? <laughs> who likes black licorice? Who likes mounds? Also, by the way, I don't know if you caught that mounds. No, I didn't. He's drinking that. a mound or drinking whiskey with a mounds. That was the reason we we did those was specifically to be like, who picks a black jelly bean out of all the options? This fucking guy does, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's the weirdo of the bunch, basically. Yeah, no offense to uh, people who like black licorice. I just I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you. I also avoid black. I, I yeah, I don't get it either. Um, well, uh, so. Here's a question. David and his mother watched the 1940 film His Girl Friday. And that's a specific movie. Uh, so, like, I wanted to ask you, like, what was the significance of that? Does that hold a special place for you personally or something? Or was that just something that you thought fit the movie? You know, unfortunately, unfortunately the answer is way more boring. Um I pay, I like paid for the movie too. I used all my own money. And so we were like, we have to find a movie that they watch together. That is public domain. So we don't have to, you know, pay for a licensing. So I went and I looked up public domain movies and I started going through some and I clicked on his girl Friday and it took me to a YouTube clip and the, and the YouTube clip that I just randomly picked picked was him saying, Oh, you're moving with your mother into Albany. Hey, great. You know? And I was like, Oh shit, this is exactly what I need. <laughs> and I went through the movie and saw that there's a few times where they talk, he talks about his mother or, you know, I was just like, yes, perfect. So I, I just went with that. So, um, I unfortunately have never even watched the movie all the way through. <laughs> Okay, good. I'm glad because honestly, like I'm that guy that if you had told me like, yeah, this movie inspired me because of this and this, I would have gone and watched the movie, but I hadn't. So I was like, that's why I asked the question. So I'm like, is this something I need to watch to understand Renapal a little more or something? So I, that's why I asked the question. No, man, save the time. <laughs> I'm sure it's great. Like, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, more of a compliment than a question, but um, I really like how you used David talking to Andy as a way of finding out more about David's past and giving him like character development by finding out about his dad and such. I felt that that was a very clear and clever way to get us deeper into David's psyche while also expressing his loneliness, because while we're getting to know him, he's talking to a fucking TV. Yes, um, and I'm sorry, you broke up. So were you talking about the dating tape that he was recording? No, no, I'm saying um, when he's he's talking to uh, he's talking to Andy and like when he when he's talking to Andy, he's telling Andy about his past and about his dad and whatnot. And I, I think that that was a very clever way to give character development of him by showing like he's you're learning about him, but also like seeing that you're learning about him by him talking to a TV. Like how lonely can that be? But that's also yeah. a brilliant use to get that like character development in there. Great. Thanks. Yeah. That was like, um, that's why the movie was so exciting was you, you imagine like, uh, Oh, it's a movie about a guy talking to his TV. What do you mean? But because of the nature of like the Renapal thing, um, you have this character in the TV that is intentionally being manipulative. Like he has a, it's scripted. So he's not being authentic and he sits down and he asks you these questions and he leaves time for response. 
And so everyone who watches the tape and sits down with Andy will have a different conversation with him, even though his conversation is the same. And so it was kind of like, ooh, how could I build the Rent-A-Pal tape so that it requires David to answer things about himself and we get to to know him more? So it was kind of like crafting the uh, what Andy decides to bring up that gives us opportunities to know more about David. So when I was writing the script, it was like, what do we need to know about David? Oh, we should probably know this, something like this about him. Maybe he was bullied at school. So let's put in a scene where that comes up. And uh, yeah, anyway, I, uh, I'm glad that you thought it was cool. <laughs> no, yeah, I thought it was a very clever way to, to, to get you to learn the backstory of a character because he's the type of character where you can tell he's depressed and he's, he's so mopey, you know, and you can tell you're like, damn, I bet, you know, he probably had a troubled past. And the, there's not really room in the movie to, like, show his origins or show his growing up. So to, like, use the means of Andy, ask him a question, and he answers – gets you that gets you that answer but also like keeps the movie and the narrative moving along without sidetracking to tell the story awesome yeah absolutely and i feel like too that you learn a lot about david through the setting um what the house looks like his basement you know like there's a lot of character built into that too of like okay he like you never see him sleeping on it but he has a cot in the corner like he doesn't even bother to get himself a nicer bed it's almost like he treats himself like crap, yeah. you know? So there's um, so many things that you can dis- uh, discern about him just from seeing the way he set up his space down there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, before I send you over to John, I have one more question that I wanted to ask you. And that is that, um, so David ruins his relationship with Lisa after blowing his load. <laughs> um, uh, that's by his own doing. Uh, he self-destructs the relationship and turns on his mother in a vicious fashion. And I feel like that's a mirror of today's society because, you know, nowadays people would rather talk online to people that they don't know or people who truly don't know them than go out and live life. You know, pen pals are taking over real life and it's not preparing people for the real world and to handle how to handle mishaps. They just shut down and go back to their comfort zone. Do you think I'm looking too much into this or do you feel that that's very reflective of what uh, is going on? 100%. 100%. The... Um the, the the key of what you said there is we were talking about the people pleasing side of David there. That also means that um, you grow up not being able to have confrontation. It's very hard for you to like argue with someone because you're like, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I just, you know, and so in that moment when they're kissing and he, you know, blows his load, she she's very understanding and cool. She's like, Hey, is everything okay? But he's unwilling to like have a, he's too afraid to have a conversation about it. So he's, he immediately gets defensive. He immediately shuts off. You wouldn't understand, you know, so he doesn't mean to sabotage it, but because of who he is, he almost can't help but do it that way because he doesn't know how to do it the other way. Yeah, and uh, I, I wanted to go back to Will Whedon for a minute as Andy. Uh, I know Robert Martin Jr. was in charge of Cassie, but was that somebody you always had in mind for that role? Like, he's overly friendly, but it's still very haunting. Like, it just has that, like, layer underneath of it. Yeah. Um, getting Will Wheaton was an absolute dream. We sat down. So... The whole thing with Renapal when we were planning it was like, okay, 
if we do the film this way and it's a guy on a tape, that means that we could get a name actor and have them fly to Denver and shoot for one day. We could pay a bunch of money for one day and get a name person and they'll be in the whole movie. It was like our perfect, you know, way to sort of like uh, cheat the system. And so we made a list of our top five picks. Like who, who do we think is within our reach, but would just be perfect. And I swear to God, Will Wheaton was number one on the list. And through a fortuitous set of circumstances, we got connected with Robert B. Martin Jr. And he was like, so like, who do you see in this role for Andy? Well, here's our list. If you can, even if you get like number five, we would be so stoked. Just let us know. And he was like, dude, I can get you Will Wheaton. So he (laughs) was able to get him. He was able to get him the script. And luckily Will read it. And we talked on the phone. He just like loved it. He was like, dude, this is really, this is an awesome script. I would be so excited to be a part of this project. And I had the phone on speakerphone and I was just like, Will Will Wheaton saying nice things about our movie. Oh my God. So um, it was like we we got lucky, but we also it was just the perfect thing where for whatever reason, the script really resonated with him. Um, And I think, you know, he's explained this in other interviews, but um, a lot of what he brought to that character was based on um, sociopaths that he had dealt with in his um, upbringing. And so, uh, you know, he just had a it, it, it. was very personal to him as well, which was really cool that he like came to the movie with like, Hey, I got something to say with this too. And we were like, great, man, that's amazing. So it was, it was just like, I, I never thought it would be, um, that it was, it was so, it felt like it was meant to happen. It was so cool. Yeah. You summed it up good. It was like an undertone of sociopath in there. It's like the guy seems very nice on the film, but you're just like, something's not right about this guy. Like, why is he making this like, like video for people? Right. Yeah. It's like the, um, you're kind of witnessing the, a playbook, how to like how to do magic tricks, but for a narcissistic sociopath, what their playbook is and how they make you feel good about yourself. And then, get you to open up and then destroy you, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's, um, that, that character was really fun to kind of figure out in what ways he was kind of a psycho, you know? And, uh, where did the like Genesis of this story come from? Like the idea of setting it with a nineties dating service. And like those videos seem so authentic. Like I remember in the early nineties, like, even on like cable access, they, they, they would play like some of those dating videos and like, they were just, they're that bad that you see in like run Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's something that I just had been running across. They were starting to go viral again. Like p- different YouTube channels were bringing back, Hey, look at these crazy old dating tapes. And I saw, had recently seen a few of those before I started writing. And it was just the, uh, you know, it is so like the nostalgia factor of like how ridiculous it was, but also it was just like the perfect f- setting to have our main character. Like, how is he going to come across this tape where you rent a pal? And there was a, the an early outline of the script was like, well, maybe he like does Columbia House and he gets seven tapes at once. And one of them, he's like, sure, I'll try rent a pal. Or maybe he goes to the video store. Um, but it seemed like a, a really great opportunity with the video dating to sort of, um, put it in that world. So, um, 
yeah. That's funny you mentioned Columbia House. That was like the biggest scam of the 90s. Right. And my parents, my mom totally signed up for Columbia House and she was like, we're going to get seven movies for the price of one kids. And we were so (laughs) stoked. We love doing it. And then, yeah, looking back, it's like, oh, man, they like, you know, made us pay a lot of money for these videos. (laughs) I'm sure there's people that were like still in debt to them when they closed like a lot. I am. (laughs) It was like the first Netflix, though. You could, you know, just like true, like when Netflix was uh, doing their DVDs, just get a bunch all at once. And I would uh, back when I was younger and I was a reckless, you know, law lawbreaker, I would just rip the movies and then, you know, have this like digital (laughs) collection. I mean, that's a smart way to go about it. It's not it's not the most lawful, but, (laughs) you know, early early 2000s was was the wild west for piracy. Yeah, man, when Napster came out, it was like, wait a second. You can just download the shit, you know, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> you can't help yourself. Uh, so I wanted to ask, David is such a nice guy in the beginning. You like feel for him. He just like can't ever catch a break. And then he just has a like terrible 24 hours. Was it his entire life that kind of led to that snapping point? Or was it just like those series of events? Just like that's what did it. Yeah, it's definitely his entire life leading to that whole thing, because the thing with, um, I don't know if you guys know this, there is a real tape, it's called Rent a Friend, um, that you can watch. It's a, it's the same concept. And so when you look at something like that, and it's like, who would do that? Who would buy this? Who would watch this? This is crazy. And then, I, the, and so that was the, the thing that like got me into thinking about the movie was like, who would fall for this? What kind of person would it have to be to watch this tape and actually be like, this is my pal. I rented him and now we're pals. And that, so, you know, everything about who he is made him the perfect victim to fall into this trap. And maybe he's the only one or maybe not, but you know, it was just a unique set of circumstances that brought him to that point. I don't think anybody else that would have experienced rent a pal would go back to the store and like destroy the place to, no, get, to get another copy. <laughs> See, he yeah, should have learned it, that when he was being insertive, he got what he wanted. The lady was like, I'm not even going to charge you this time. That's right. That was the whole the whole thing with that character is the, all of the bad things happen to him in that movie because of choices he makes. Like he chooses to cancel his date with Lisa to go like watch a video tape that asked him. <laughs> yeah. And you're just like, what are you doing, you idiot? And so that's, you know, like, um, it's self-destructive, like we talked about. And also just um, he doesn't ever choose what he wants. He only chooses what other people want because that's who he is. Yeah, like David kind of almost starts incorporating stuff from Andy into his life. Like he steals the joke from the video. And like towards the end is is David still in control or is he kind of like morphed into like Andy at the end? Yeah. Um, that's the one, one thing that's probably the most open for interpretation of like, does Andy possess him at the end or what's going on there? But I do think that ultimately David is in control the whole time and he just finally gets to where it's too much everything, you know, and that's been happening to him in the course of the film, but also whatever happened that earlier in his life that we never saw, is finally breaking loose and he's, you know, 
channeling kind of the creepiness that is Andy into what happens in the finale. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, but you could, I think you could interpret that a lot of different ways. And uh, one last question about Renapal. Is David the ultimate bros before hose kind of guy? <laughs> I think he, uh, I think if you asked him in, you know, hindsight's 2020, he probably would have said hose before bros, but you know, yeah, well, that's part of the whole thing with Andy is the, um, the toxic masculinity aspect of it, that, that the, like some of that locker room talk, yeah. some of that, like, um, talking about how girls are sluts that sleep around, you know, like just some of that uh, stuff I think was important to say there too. So there was a, you know, in a way loosely like commentary on that, um, on like literally bros before hoes. I mean, he, he chose a dude in a videotape over a lady that was very understanding of his situation and like yes. super helpful. She's perfect. Like, what are you doing, man? How could you do, how could you, that's, the, that's the worst part about him. It's the whole time, every decision you're like, why? Like, why? like, like, like my fiance. Like one of the things that made her the most mad in the movie is when she was still going to charge him for the videotape to go watch after she was like, no, uh, she, you know, you didn't come down. She, she picked up somebody else's tape and they're going out on a date. Then he was like, well, can I still see what I was missing? That was like the most, she's like, why would you charge him for why that? Would, and I was, yeah. I and said, why would That's you pay for it? Why would you agree exactly. to pay for it? <laughs> that was my and, thing is like, I would be like, well then no, at the, at the very least then take it back. I'm not paying for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, Again, like David's character, everything he does, he does be because of who he is. And, you know, like he falls for Renapal because of the perfect circumstances of who he is. And in order to be that person that falls into the trap, he has to be someone that's constantly making these kind of decisions where you're just like, what are you doing, man? Why are you doing this to yourself? And then he goes home and watches the tape and tortures him, tortures himself with it. Cause she's amazing. You know, it's like any normal person would just be like, I'm going to no, thank you and forget about it and move on. So it's, uh, yeah. I'd rather go out on the date than play go fish with the video. Right? Come on, man. Mounds. What do you think? Is it, is it just mounds or do you have problems with almond joy too? You know, here's the thing. Um, I give mounds a bad rap. They're not bad. And I also like really enjoy, those Girl Scout cookies, the coconut, what are they called? Uh, Samoas. Samoas. That's like my favorite one. And frankly, the difference between a Mounds or an Almond Joy and a Samoa is just a little bit of cookie crunch. So, That's you true. know, I, I, uh, I like Almond Joys. I'm not a big fan of Mounds. Right. You got to have the almond at least something yeah. to give you the crunch. And uh, so. I think I, th I think we solved the mounds almond joy dilemma. Mars should just discontinue mounds and only do almond. It's joy. kind of amazing to me that it exists. It makes me wonder if, like, I don't know any. I just don't ever see anyone pick up a mounds, choose the mounds, and so it makes me wonder. Like, do they make mounds out of all the leftover stuff from the other candy bars? And they're like, hey, we got a bunch of coconut and chocolate left. Should we just like, yeah, sure? Like, how is it still around? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well. uh, 
I, I personally, while we're on the topic of candy, before John moves on, in case you can't tell, we like us some candy. Um, do you uh, prefer <laughs> Hershey's with almonds or without? I'm a guy I like Hershey's with almonds. Oh, with almonds. Chocolate. Yeah, I need the. I love almonds. I'm like, why not? Yeah, it's a little something extra, f- and it's the same price usually. Right, Hershey Kisses with almonds versus the plain Hershey Kiss. It's nice to get that crunch in the middle. I don't know. Uh, so we want to ask, do you have any upcoming projects? Um, nothing that's, you know, concrete. I'm definitely working on a few things. You you got to get a bunch of irons in the fire so that one of them actually goes. And so there's, it's just, uh, you know, doing that. I'm in that stage right now. But I've got a lot of stuff that I'm really excited about. It's too early to talk about because, you know, it's not uh, fully baked, <laughs> high and horror. Um, but um, yeah, it, it'll be, hopefully I'll have something coming soon. Do you feel like things are starting to open up more? I feel like that's what we've been hearing a lot is, you know, COVID kind of shut everything down and now it seems like around now, like there's a lot of people able, able to go back to, to work and all yeah. stuff. Definitely. I think everyone's kind of, uh, it definitely has felt the most normal it's felt in a long time. And, um, that includes going back to movie theaters. You know, we, when rent came out in September of 2020, so we were still like in lockdown and it had a theatrical release because I don't know if you remember, but there's like a bunch of drive throughs that were surging during that time because that was the only place people could go to see movies safely. So we had a bunch of drive through openings and then we were in, you know, like Alamo draft houses and stuff. So I think we had like 60 screens and we didn't make any money. Like n- no one saw it because it was, you know, so many places were closed. And, um, but so it kind of put a damper on the release. We were like, oh man, we didn't even get to have a premiere because we, there was, everything was uh, closed up. So, um, I'm really excited for the next film because I've never actually gotten to see rent in a theater with a crowd. I've never seen it with a group of people. I've only ever heard what people thought of it. So, uh, and that's a big part of making a movie. You want to like show it to people and see how they react to it and get that satisfaction. So, uh, I'm looking forward to that on the next one. And, uh, where can people find you online? Um, Instagram is what I'm on. And, uh, my handles, John P Stevenson, J O N no H. John. Yeah, I'm the H John. You're the no H John. That's right. My carbon footprint <laughs> is slightly smaller than yours. You got me there. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, Renapal, I mean, I wish I could have got to have seen it in theaters as well, uh, but we, we both enjoyed it and we're glad we got to talk to you about it. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you guys. It was, it was fun talking about it. Thank you. That was great. Thanks to all the horror hounds and smokers out there for tuning in. Thanks to John Stevenson for being high on horror. And if you haven't seen Renapal, make sure to check that out immediately. And join us next week when Slapface writer and director Jeremiah Kipp joins us. Slapface is currently available exclusively on Shudder. Uh, make sure to follow us online on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at High on Horror 420. Visit our website at highonhorror.com. While you're there, buy some merch, sign up for our newsletter. If you sign up for our newsletter, you'll get the latest episodes and guest announcements sent directly to your inbox. While you're there, feel free to submit a question for Puff Puff Ask. 
And uh, you can do that through the website, or you can always email us at highonhorror420 at gmail.com. And that'll about wrap her up. Catch you later.